This morning we are finishing our series on the book of Revelation. There are 22 chapters, so we're going to be hearing today from chapter 22. There is a principle in literary interpretation and therefore in interpreting the Bible called end stress. End stress. The thing you put at the end gets more attention. It gets more emphasis. It's kind of the you know, here's the last thing I want resounding in your ears. Or in the case of Revelation, which is a series of visions, it's the last set of images I want flashing before your eyes as you close this book. Uh, special emphasis. What, what is that last vision? Well, the last vision in the book of Revelation is in chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's a vision of the Lord who says, I am making all things new. And that new heaven and new earth are the home for a new city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a symbol for God's people united with Him for eternity. And in chapter 22, we're shown three last features of that new city. New heavens, new earth, with a new city in it. What things do you want us to know are in that new city? Three things. A river that waters a tree. And on the branches of that tree are growing leaves that are for the healing of the nations. The last thing God wants to stress for us in the book of Revelation it's a vision of hope and healing. His life-giving power at work in the world through the good news about Jesus for the healing of the nations. Let's listen as Stacy reads for us today. Today's passage is from Revelation 22, verses 1 through 7. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And every curse will be no more but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will have no need of light from lamp or sun, for the Lord God will shine light upon them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his messenger to show his servants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I never would have wanted these harsh words to spill from my mouth. I am not in the habit of speaking this sharply. 
but now Christ's truth has aroused me. Not my words. Those are the words of the patron saint of green beer, St. Patrick. Um, so before he was known as St. Patrick, Patrick was a leader in the church in the 5th century in what today we would know as Ireland. And um, he wrote these words, these harsh words, um, sharp words. He says, I'm not in the habit of speaking this sharply. I, I, I don't generally want harsh words like this to spill from my mouth, but the truth of Christ has aroused me. He wrote these words as part of a letter it's called the Letter to the Soldiers of Caroticus. Caroticus was a, kind of a warlord in a, a ancient Ireland. And um, the, the Roman Empire has withdrawn from Great Britain at this stage and kind of left this power vacuum. And so these warlords are battling for power. And one of them, Caroticus, sends his soldiers to um, a church on a day that many people have just been baptized. They are brand new Christians, uh, many of them, young men and women. Uh, they're still wearing the white garments in which they were baptized. And many of them are murdered on the spot by these soldiers. Others are taken captive and made slaves and submitted to all kinds of assault and abuse. So Patrick writes this letter and he says, Christ has aroused me to say some harsh and sharp things. This letter begins with anguish. The, the anguish of a church leader who knows that his people are under attack. And uh, it begins with fury. Anger at those who would um, carry out this kind of crime. But it ends with hope for the healing of of the nations. It starts in this place of sadness and grief and fury, but it ends with hope that the Christians who are reading this letter would publish it. Now, that, that doesn't mean, you know, post it so everybody can see it. It, it means go, go out and talk about it. This is not a literate culture where things are written down and, and published in writing. He's saying, I want all of you Christians to, to learn the contents of this letter and go out and talk to everyone you know about it so that eventually, quoting Patrick again, every people, even Caroticus himself, will hear. Then God may inspire them and they may repent. And thus they would live in God and be healed for this life and eternity. It's a letter that begins in this place of anguish that God's people are experiencing abuse, persecution, even being murdered. There are warnings of judgment of what happens if you continue to abuse God's people in this way and don't repent. But it ends with this beautiful vision that even the person responsible for this tragedy can be healed. It ends with hope for the healing of the nations. That's the rhythm of the whole book of Revelation. 
The reason it's written is because in the first century Roman Empire, people who were followers of Jesus were being pressured, persecuted, some of them even put to death. And there are moments of anguish and fury and warnings of what happens if you continue to reject God and to mistreat His people in this way. But look where the whole ends. It ends with a vision of the God who makes all things new. Of a God who promises that there's a river in this new city and that that river waters a tree and it's a tree of life and that on that tree grow leaves and those leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, if God's going to offer healing to the nations, we have to start with talking about humanity's need for healing. So let's do that. And then we'll see what kind of healing God is offering and how He extends that offer. And then, what's our calling as a church, as those who are following Jesus, to be part of what God is doing to heal the nations? Let's start with uh, humanity's need for healing. You live in a forest, right? If you know that nickname of Atlanta, the city in a forest, um, you fly over the city and look down and see all the trees. Driving up and down La Vista can sometimes feel like driving through a canyon lined with trees on both sides. Um, Not all cities are like that. When you live in a place like that, this imagery of a tree growing big deal leaves on a tree mm, we got plenty of like not a big deal rivers oh we got your chattahoochee you know like any direction you drive you're going to hit big water soon savannah river if you go that way uh so so we may not be as as stimulated when we hear that oh the last thing god wants us to see in this book of visions is a river and a tree and some leaves. But the world we live in is, is full of drought and famine where trees don't bear fruit, where trees don't grow, and they don't get enough water. The world that we live in is full of disease and death. And so when we hear about a river filled with the water of life. And when we see that that on the sides of that river grow the tree of life, we aren't meant to take these images for granted at all. You don't even have to live in a desert to know this is a reality. At any given moment, there are people on our planet who are starving because they don't have enough food. At any given moment, there are people on our planet who are racked by disease. At any given moment, there is someone in this room grieving because of death. Why do we have this need? There's only one other place in the whole Bible that talks about a tree of life. So as you read this chapter, uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, you come to verse 2, And you see this phrase, the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Um, 
There's only one other place in the Bible that talks about a tree of life. It's Genesis chapters 2 and 3. God creates humanity, gives us a perfect environment to live in. We have the perfect relationship with Him, perfect relationship with one another, with the creation He has made. Everything is as it should be. And yet, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, choose autonomy from God, independence from Him. Autonomy means a law unto yourself, self, autos, namas, law. I am my own law. God, I don't care what you have told me. I know a better way. I don't care what you have offered me. I can find something better for myself. When the human race engages with God in that kind of posture, which we all do, every one of us does that. The result is... Genesis 2 and 3 tells us Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and they don't have access anymore to the tree of life. And God posts an angel to guard the way, not just to the garden, but the text says specifically to the tree of life. We are cut off from life. Curse and death embrace the whole world, all nations. What are the results? Three results. First, alienation from God and from each other. Relationships are fragile. We are easily isolated. Relationships are easily broken. And we have to work really hard to overcome that sense of alienation that divides us from one another and even from God. That's the first result. The second is disintegration of the self. You've got a self, a soul. You're a whole person designed for, every, for wholeness. And, and once we choose this path of independence from God, the curse that comes down on our whole world means everything about the world is now trying to split us into parts, to divide us. Our souls aren't whole anymore. We begin to fracture and fragment And so you become the kind of person who, you know, says you would do anything for your spouse, but consistently loves your job more than your husband or wife. Why does that happen? Because we, we undergo this process of fragmentation, of, of disintegration. The whole, the, the center where everything is working well gets thrown off balance and things don't stay whole anymore alienation disintegration and just plain old affliction life is full of tears and hardship and sad days and bad days and there are plenty of things in this world to be afraid of and we are constantly having to push back drought and famine literally and metaphorically some part of you is starving right now. Some part of you is dry and parched and not getting enough rain right now. We need healing. And then God offers it. He offers us healing. That's the good news of this final vision of Revelation chapter 22. Now, I don't always do this, but this week I was like, you know what? Y'all just need to see the, the Jimmy Egan version translation of this passage. I mean, all respect to the ESV translators, so it's mostly their words. But the punctuation reflects 
the Greek text a bit better. In other words, this sentence starts, the angel showed me. And then, well, what? What, John? What did the angel show you? Well, if you read most English translations, you would get the impression the angel showed us one thing, the river of life. But if you read this sentence, Andrew's checking me. I see you, brother. Right? Um, there are actually three objects of that verb showed. He showed, showed us three things. A river... And then, verse 2, on either side of the river, the tree of life. And then, on that tree, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. So I've just punctuated it here as all one big long sentence. Right? Because we're seeing these three things together. A river. It's a river of life. Where does life come from? It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is life flowing out from the heart of God Himself. And if we are this race of people experiencing alienation and disintegration, our souls are coming apart, and, and affliction of all kinds, and tears and fears, and drought and famine continually in our world and in our lives and our relationships, God is saying, I will send life out to you. He's not saying, there is water over here, and if you want it, you better come get it. It's the image of a river. And is it going to run dry? You know, it's not a little bit of water put in a bucket and carried to us, and God saying, I hope it's enough. It's a river, constantly flowing, life flowing out from the heart of God Himself into what kind of world? Well, here's where it helps to really know the book of Ezekiel. So, you and I may not think of this when we read these images of, of river and tree of life and leaves for healing. But man, anybody who had ever read Ezekiel chapter 47 would just say, Ah, this, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet said. Because Ezekiel is describing this vision of a temple and water flowing out of the temple and it's flowing to the east and, and where does it go well Ezekiel stands on the bank of a river verse 6 of chapter 47 and and I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other oh that sounds like what John said on either side of the river and, the angel, and an angel says to Ezekiel, this water flows toward the east and goes down into the Arabah, the Jordan River Valley. And then where, where does it go? It flows into the sea. And when that happens, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. What is Ezekiel talking about? Well, when you go east from the temple in Jerusalem into the Jordan Valley, the sea, you're talking about the Dead Sea. Why is the Dead Sea dead? Why does nothing live there? Well, it's the lowest place 
naturally occurring place on the face of the planet. Uh, people have drilled deeper holes. Water can't go anywhere when it gets there. There is no downhill for it to flow to. And so all the minerals that are carried by water when it flows through soil wind up staying there. And nothing can live there. Man, it feels amazing. It's like taking a bath in baby oil. Uh, and you can't sink no matter how hard you try. But I wouldn't want to be a, want a fish. I want to be a fish trying to live in it, right? Um, so God is promising that in a world that kills everything, that there's enough life in Him to make everything live again. In a Dead Sea world, there can be life. Everywhere that human autonomy and independence from God has brought in its wake death and curse, the river of life can flow. And there's a tree bearing 12 crops of 12 different kinds of fruit. Now, if you read this quickly, you might not realize that you're getting a 12 by 12 image here. Right? But, but read carefully. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of, Andrew, check us, the word is fruits, plural, correct? Not fruit, singular. There are 12 different fruits growing on this tree. And a crop of these 12 fruits is being born once every month. That's 12 times 12. What does 12 times 12 imagery mean in the context of the book of Revelation? Well, chapter 21 already told us. It described this new Jerusalem as having 12 gates. What do those gates symbolize? I wonder. Oh, the text tells us. They stand for the tribes of the sons of Israel. And, and this city is resting on 12 foundations. I wonder what that symbol stands for. The text tells us. It stands for the apostles, the 12 apostles. So what we're getting is this description of a people that are centered around the gospel of Jesus in the Old Testament and the 12 tribes of Israel, all the things that had to prepare for the coming of Christ that were coming into the world through God's people. And then once, once Jesus comes and lives and dies and is resurrected and he sends out his 12 apostles, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all nations. This tree is there to give life to all nations. The good news about Jesus creates this new life. It creates the new city, the new Jerusalem, the new people of God, and it sustains our life forever. And there are leaves on the tree, and they are for the healing of the nations. You read about the nations in the book of Revelation, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes the nations are those who are redeemed by Christ. Every people, tribe, nation, and language redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But sometimes in the book of Revelation, the nations are those who are deceived by the dragon, Satan. And the nations are those who make war against God and His people. The nations 
are those who are most hostile to God. And yet, here we're shown this vision that says, in the end, after the healing of the nations, God's servants will worship Him. Wow. The nations are filled with people who worship idols. Isn't God mad about that? Aren't the nations excluded from God's love? But the tree of life is watered by the love of God Himself, which offers redemption, salvation, healing to any person anywhere. The leaves that grow on this tree are for the healing, not just of Israel, not just of the church, of the nations, anyone, anywhere on the face of this planet, this century or any other, this city or any other, who puts their trust in God and the Lamb. will be restored and healed. And in the end, chapter 7, verse 9 says, a countless multitude, more people than you could number from every tribe and people and nation and tongue, will become citizens in the kingdom of God and of the Lamb. So what does that mean for you and for me? If, if God is that gracious that He would be willing to forgive and redeem even those who war against Him and against His people, if God is that gracious, that grace has to change us. We can't be the same after receiving that kind of mercy. It's why Patrick wound up in Ireland a second time. I don't know if you know his story. He was originally not from Ireland. He was kidnapped and made a slave by people from Ireland. He became a Christian during his enslavement. He escaped. And one day said, you know what? God is calling me to take good news about Jesus back to the people who enslaved me. And so the second time he went to Ireland was by choice, voluntarily. The grace that he had received through Jesus from his heavenly Father changed him, and he wanted more people to know about it. And he had every right to be full of bitterness and hatred and to want nothing but revenge and wrath to fall upon those who had made his life miserable. But good news about Jesus reverses the death curse and the Dead Sea can live. And human hearts can be transformed. And so now he's a man who's willing to endure great hardship. He's a man who's willing to stand alongside the murdered in order that the nations can hear good news about Jesus. And so the end of his letter doesn't say, go find Caroticus and kill him. And if you see one of his soldiers, string him up. 
the end of his letter says, maybe they will hear and be healed just as I heard and was healed. That's our calling. The story Jesus is writing you into as one of his followers is a story that ends with the healing of the nations. If that's how the story ends, let's start working for that right now. How do we do that? How do we work to heal those who are enduring alienation? Well, there are millions of ways, but let's just start with one simple one. You know plenty of people who don't think that anyone loves them. Or they're afraid that if, if anyone does love them, it's only if they perform well enough. And if they stop performing, the love will stop. Who do you know who needs to hear that is not the way the world is meant to work? Who do you know who needs to hear there is somebody who loves you? Who do you know who needs to hear you say, I love you, and nothing you do changes that? Because my love is not conditioned on performance. That won't solve every problem in the world, but man, it's a good place to start. How about disintegration? Do you know somebody who is moving toward wholeness in the face of all kinds of temptations to split their soul in all kinds of different directions, and they're making an effort to move toward wholeness. What can you do to support and encourage them? They may be seeking that wholeness through Jesus. They may be seeking it some other way. But it is not a bad thing when broken people seek wholeness. What can you do to encourage that? It's hard work. How can you encourage someone who's doing that hard work? Who do you know who's feeling the drought and the famine, who's weeping the tears, what can you offer to your neighbors who need relief from affliction? I don't know the answer. It's good to ask the question. The leaves on this tree, watered by the river of life that flows from the heart of God and the Lamb Himself, are for the healing of the nations. This is one of those nations. This healing is meant for our neighbors. It's meant for our children. It's meant for everybody around us. Will it make any difference? Jesus reverses the death curse by his death and resurrection, and so many people treat him like just kind of a good luck charm. Seriously? I die to redeem the whole cosmos and you treat me like I'm just another good guy who sometimes gives you good life advice? Or you're Patrick. You give your life to take the gospel to people who enslaved you and you become the patron saint of green beer. Seriously? Is, is that all that's waiting for someone who follows Jesus? He is the lamb. He was slaughtered. It looked like his life was over. But the river of the water of life never stopped flowing, and it won't stop. 
the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it can't be defeated. No, no matter how many people know Patrick for parties and overindulgence, you can never undo the reality that this young man's heart was changed by Jesus. The gospel can't be defeated. In the end, a countless multitude from every tribe and people and nation and tongue will be redeemed and healed by the leaves that grow on this tree, watered by the love that flows from the heart of God and of the Lamb. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you as the Lamb who loves the nations. You love the nations enough to lay down your own life for our redemption. You love the nations enough to allow yourself to be broken, to allow your own soul even to experience disintegration as um, you went to the cross knowing on the one hand that you wholeheartedly loved your Father and on the other hand that He was hiding His face from you as though you had abandoned and betrayed Him. And you did that for us. You love the nations enough to make yourself known through the words of Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures that point to you, the New Testament Scriptures that proclaim what you have accomplished. And as we experience now, you make yourself known through the sacraments a baptism, a sign of the washing away of guilt and of shame, of sin and its consequences in our relationship with the Father. And the Lord's Supper, a sign that you laid down your life so that we could be nourished, not only our bodies, one day redeemed when you return to resurrect us. But even now, our souls made new and given life that can grow and grow and grow for all of eternity. Thank you for making yourself known to us. We pray in your name. Amen.